what I'd like to do is just start really with a recap uh, because I've been trying to preach into this theme for the last month and um, I've called this message this morning Tongues of Fire, Tongues of Fire and uh, I really hope that it'll encourage you. So James, James starts chapter 3 by warning teachers, uh, people like me who preach and he says not many of you should want to be preachers and um, he says that because preachers are judged more strictly than other people and we had a look at that, I preached a message called So You Want to Teach? And I hope some of you still do want to preach and uh, I really trust that the, the fire of God is burning in you, um, that you want to share it with other people. But, but James starts the chapter by encouraging teachers and saying, just be careful for what you ask for because you will be judged more strictly than, the, than others. And then he goes on and he expands it to everybody in the congregation and he says, all of us stumble in many ways in, in how we use our tongue, in how we speak. But his conclusion is very encouraging because he, he says, he uses this word teleos, and he says if a man can control his tongue, he is perfect in every way. And the word there for perfect is teleos, perfection. It means to be full grown, it means to be mature, it means to be a man. That's what it, what it means. And in, throughout the New Testament, that's what the word teleos means, and it's used in many places. Jesus uses it in Matthew 5, 48, and he says, you be perfect, teleos, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus encourages us, he says, God wants us to grow up and be mature, he wants us to be men and women, he doesn't want us just to be spiritual babies all of our lives. Uh, Paul uses it in, in numerous places in, in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, 2 Corinthians 3, 11, uh, Colossians 1, 27, 2 Timothy 3.16. So there's this theme of, of growing up in the things of God and becoming mature, becoming uh, perfect in that sense. And so James, James really says a very simple thing. He says the battle that all of us have to win, every single one of us, the battle of battles, the most important battle in our lives that determines the direction of how we move, whether we move towards maturity, teleos, or whether we move towards, continue to stay immature, the battle that we have to win is the battle of the tongue. How we speak. And uh, he, he encourages us much more deeply than just saying, it's not that we, we should refrain from speaking badly. That is, is, is a given. But he tries to encourage us much more deeply than that, and he tries to encourage us towards compassionate, affectionate love that builds each other up. And so he's not just saying, don't speak badly. He's saying much more than that. He's saying something much deeper than that. He's saying the battle that we need to win is a battle in the church of learning to encourage people in Christ, affectionate, deep relationships that, um, that look past hurt and get over that and uh, relationships that can express forgiveness in a tangible way that people feel forgiven and live free and live fearless because of the Spirit of God in the, in the church. And that's what he's, he's trying to encourage us in a very positive way. And so to do that, he says a very simple thing. He uses two pictures. He says the tongue is like a, a, a bridle in a horse's mouth, and the tongue is like a ship, ship's rudder, which essentially are small things, but they determine where those, the, the horse goes, they determine where the ship goes. And so he's making a very simple and obvious comparison that the tongue in the same way determines the direction of your life. Just think about that for a moment. How you speak 
ultimately controls the destiny and the direction of your life. That's what he's saying. And so I want to say this, as a, just to underpin this. Controlling our tongues by not speaking, by not saying anything, is neutral at best. It's neutral at best. At worst, it is negative. It is completely negative. It doesn't create a sense of forward momentum to say nothing. If you want to build a positive, loving church community that is not done by keeping silent. If you want to build a positive, loving marriage, it is not done by keeping silent. If you want to build a happy leadership team that is full of passion and joy for the things of God, it is not built by keeping quiet. The best teams in the world, whether it's rugby or or cricket or whatever, football, what happens in a good team? A good team is always speaking positively, affectionately, encouraging, saying, we can do this. That is a good team. And a healthy church is not built around silence. A healthy church is built around verbal affirmation, saying, God is good, I love you, I forgive you, I want the best for you, I want the best of God in this church. And I preached a message called The Master Key, which if you didn't hear, I want to encourage you to listen on the on podcast, because I try to do my best to explain some of these things a little bit more clearly. And the last thing I said, I want to start there this morning. Paul, James, and the New Testament call us to maturity, call us to teleos, in a way that is not self-righteous, in a way that does not look down on others, and in a way that is humble. And the best expression of that, that I can, illustration of that, is Paul writing to the Philippian church. And this is Paul, the great apostle of grace, the man that has understood the gospel perfectly better than anyone else in all of history. This is what Paul says about himself. He says, not that I have already obtained this. He says, not that I'm already perfect. Telios, the same word. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. One thing I do, Forgetting what is, lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on towards the goal, the prize. And then he defines what the goal and the prize is. It is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And so Paul, he appeals to us as, his, as Christ's church. He appeals and says, live like this, not looking down on others, not if you have revelation about something, reveling in that and encouraging others in a mature way to grow into that revelation, not looking down on them, not with a sense of superiority, with humility, saying, I also am on a journey and I've got a long way to go. Forgetting what is behind, I press on for the upward call which is in Christ Jesus. And so I want to encourage that we as a church community live like that. Walking humbly by the Spirit, without self-righteousness, without superiority. And that, my friends, my dear friends, is going to enable us to live free of this ugly polarization that has gripped uh, the church for centuries. The law on the one hand, and licentiousness on the other. We are called to live free of the law, 
and we are called to live free of licentiousness. We are called to walk by the Spirit of God who shows us all things and renews all things in our lives. And so I concluded by pleading with you, by encouraging you that we give ourselves to love, that we give ourselves to words of deep affection in our relationships with each other, that the atmosphere of this church in particular and God's church but this church in particular, that the atmosphere of this church continuously transforms, transforms from one degree of glory to another, and that the atmosphere of this church embodies deep affection for each other, deep love for each other, and not restrained affection. Not restrained. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians. He appeals to the Corinthian church and he says, I appeal to you. Don't withhold your affection from me. I have not withheld my affection from you. I appeal to you. Open wide your heart. I want to encourage you to open wide your heart to each other. Every one of us. Why do I say that? Because I believe deep affection speaks of the gospel. When you know you've been set free from all sin, you can love others. Grim, unsmiling severity in the church. Speaks of legalism. It does. It speaks of legalism. It doesn't speak of a heart that has been set free, that understands the gospel. You know sometimes why we're hard on other people? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we are hard on ourselves. If we have not understood the grace of God, if we don't know how much God has forgiven us, we sometimes can't forgive others in the same way, because we haven't forgiven ourselves yet. And so a Dutch theologian called uh, Henry Nouwen, he makes this appeal. He says, do not hesitate to love and to love deeply. I want to encourage you, love deeply. Love deeply. Take the risk. If you have um, been in any community of faith for any length of time, you will understand this, that anyone who's been a part of a community of faith can experience hurt. If you've experienced hurt in any way, I want to ask you to put that behind you. I want to ask you to lay it at the foot of the cross. I want to ask you to forgive so that you can move on in the upward call of Christ Jesus, straining forward to see Christ glorified in your life. Now, with that as an introduction, I'm going to make three simple points this morning, starting in verse 6 of chapter 3. James says this, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, that means our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Wow. (laughs) Strong words, aren't they? And having started in such a positive way, with James encouraging all of us and saying, maturity is possible, perfection is possible, teleos is possible, use your tongue like a, a rudder and a bridle to move towards maturity. Very positive images. James now uses three negative images to just illustrate how destructive our tongues can be. And I'm going to try and preach this in the most encouraging way, because I believe at the end of the day, James is being very encouraging to us if we'll just hear what he's saying. 
Right? So the first thing he says is this. The tongue is a fire. And that's not why I've called this message tongues of fire. But he says the tongue is a fire. And he uses this phrase, a world of unrighteousness. He says the tongue represents a world of unrighteousness in me and a world of unrighteousness in you. And what does that mean? It means that fallen part of us, that part of us that is still being renewed, we are perfect in Christ, we have His perfect righteousness, that's our legal position, but we are still putting to death something of the old man by the power of the Spirit. And so he's saying the tongue represents everything in our lives that the devil wants to use to get us to speak like he wants us to speak instead of submitting to how the Holy Spirit wants us to speak. And he says the tongue becomes the spokesperson for a world of unrighteousness within us. It might start like a tiny little spark. It might just start like an ember. But once it's fanned into flame, it takes control and it spreads until everything is set on fire. And so he calls it this, he uses this this phrase, this world of unrighteousness. So let me just clarify it further. Everything in your life, everything in my life that is hostile to God, that hates God, that is uh, nasty, that is unkind, that is unpleasant, everything like that. The spokesperson for that in my life and in your life is the tongue. Speaks on behalf of all that is unrighteous. That's what James is saying. And then he carries on. He he says, secondly, that the influence of the tongue, it stains our entire body. What does he mean by that? Well, not only does the tongue oppose God and reject everything that is godly, but it defiles us. It defiles our personality. Our, our life is not what it's, it ought to be. It's less than what it could be. And the culprit is our tongue. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And it's saying, he's saying the entire course, the entire direction of your life can be determined by how you speak, by how I speak. Man, this is... This is uh, If we can get revelation of this, it can radically transform our lives. Thirdly, James says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Hell itself. So he says the first thing, it's a spokesperson for all that's anti-God. And now he actually makes it even clearer. He says, actually, no, the tongue does the devil's work. And there are three words that the authorized version of the New Testament uses when it talks about hell. There are three words. The first is Tartarus, which is used once in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. It's the only time that word is used. The second word that's used more commonly is Hades. That's used, uh, which means death. And it's used in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, the gates of hell, Hades, will not prevail against the church. Aren't you glad about that? The gates of hell, the gates of death, cannot prevail against God's church. And it's also used in Revelation 1, 18, where it's Jesus says, I've died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So that's the second word. The third word that is used is the word that James uses here. It's another Greek word, Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. And without exception in the New Testament, 
It means eternal damnation. It is used together with other words like everlasting fire, like weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. And uh, some quarters of the church, it's not fashionable anymore to talk about hell. We are encouraged not to talk about hell, to try and get people saved. Well, I want to say to you, once you have a revelation of hell, you'll do anything to help God to get people not to go there. And I want to say to you, the devil believes in hell, and the, the demons believe in hell. Why do I say that? Because Matthew eight twenty nine, when Jesus is casting out some demons, they shout out, they cry, Behold, they say, What have you done with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? They know the end is coming. Revelation 12, 12 says this, Rejoice heaven and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What is the implication? The devil knows, demons know that there is hell, and that they are going to be plunged into hell when God brings all things to an end. And they know their time is coming, and they know that their time is short. And according to what James is saying here, the very fire of hell motivates the devil to do violence to us. And so can I say this? The devil wants chaos to continue. The devil wants violence to continue. The devil wants injustice to continue. The devil wants slander to continue. And the devil wants to try and keep those things in your life, if he can. If he can't, he'll try and paralyze you. He'll try and make you fearful. He'll try to make you neutral. He'll try to make you unpassionate about the things of the kingdom. And here James says quite plainly, that it is the fire of hell, the fire of Gehenna, that sets my tongue on fire, and it sets your tongue on fire, because it's the devil who's trying to get you to, do this, to say the things that you know that you shouldn't say. It's the only motivation. And why does James make this point so strongly? I'm going to suggest two things. One, so that all true Christians, listen to me, all true Christians will have a deep mourning for sin in their lives. It grieves me that there's such a lack of the fear of God in God's church, that people carry on sinning like it doesn't matter, and like they're not going to be judged, and that we plead the blood of Jesus, but there's going to be no consequences in their lives. It grieves me that people walk around churches thinking they can say what they like, do what they like, and God is not going to do anything. God hates sin. He always brings us to a place of repentance. A fear of God. Secondly, I believe that James says it so strongly, so that true Christians will radically take hold of themselves and live different from the rest of humanity. Radically, by the power of the Spirit. You see, this is where it's so difficult because it's not, I'm not only talking about the things that we say that are questionable, unkind, improper, where our tongues betray us. I thought of this example. When Peter, out of concern, draws Jesus aside and gives him his best advice. Remember the story in Matthew 16, 22. 
Peter draws Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him and he says, far be it from you, Lord. This thing shall never happen to you. Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem and die for us. And Peter talks to him and says, no, 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 it's never going to happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind to the things of God, but you are setting your mind to the things of man. Even when Peter is trying to give his best advice to Jesus, out of compassion, Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, you're thinking in the wrong way. These words that you're speaking to me are not God's plan for my life. They're the man's plan for my life. I want to plead with you as God's people that we say things to each other that encourage people in God's destiny for their life, not just man's destiny for their life. That we truly learn to encourage people to put the kingdom of God first, not the kingdom of man. And it grieves me as a church leader to see how many so-called mature Christians encourage younger Christians and how they're actually encouraging them is to think in a worldly way rather than in a godly way. And their priorities in terms of their time and all this are screwed upside down because they've taken advice from mature Christians and all they are doing is making them think in a worldly way rather than a godly way. I don't say that to point fingers at anyone. I'm just saying that, that let us be those that encourage each other to tell us maturity, the things of the kingdom, not the things of this world. Amen? The second thing, James simply says, the tongue is like a wild animal. <laughs> a wild animal. He's simply saying that people are very clever at taming wild animals. But no one can tame their own tongue, and no one can tame the tongue of other people. It's like a restless beast waiting to spring into action. Now, the comparison is like it's a half-trained wild animal. It's not fully under control. You think you have it under control, and then in a moment it springs out and it's violent and it's unkind and it's ugly. That's what he's saying. It turns savage and turns violent. How many of you are in this room this morning are sorry about some rash, unkind things that you've said in your life? I put both hands up. If I could put my feet up in the air, I would as well. I've said some rash, unkind, silly things, which I'd never said. Can never take it back. Third thing he says, the tongue is like poison. Well, the fire can destroy goods and property. Wild animals kill Savage people, what is poison used for? Murder, suicide. My friends, I want to say to you, people murder each other by the words that they speak. Slander and gossip, I think it's the most, one of the most displeasing things to God. And so that's why James uses these very, very strong illustrations. I was just reflecting on it. The Bible gives plenty of examples of how our tongues damage people in the way that we speak. What about, I'm going to just a couple of things. Untruthful words. Just untruth. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. You know, even godly people can fall into lying. Why do I say that? Well, again, I want to use Peter. Matthew 26, verse 69. Jesus has already told Peter, who loves him, and we know how much Peter loves him by how much what, God, what Jesus does to restore Peter in, 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 after his resurrection. 
Jesus knows Peter loves him. What happens in this story? It says, he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to evoke a curse. He now loses it completely. He starts swearing and cursing. And he says, I don't know this man. I don't know the man. And immediately... The rooster crows, and Peter remembered what Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Just because we know Jesus doesn't mean we're not going to give in to untruthful words sometimes. What about exaggerated words? (laughs) What about exaggerated words? I want to pick on church leaders because I think sometimes church leaders are the worst. What I mean by that? Well, how many, how many times have you heard extravagant claims of how many people were saved at a meeting? You know, if we to believe all the statistics of how many people have been saved in Africa, the, the continent has been saved twice over. It's true. Preachers like to exaggerate how many people came to the meetings, how many people got saved. Uh, even preachers, I've done this before, you, you're trying to make a point, so you exaggerate your example, and it just pushes it a little bit too far. You know what Proverbs 6.19 says? God hates false witness and breathes out on, on that, 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 sorry, God, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord amongst brothers. God hates that. It's really a false witness. And uh, James, in chapter 4, says simply, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Behind all lying, behind all exaggeration, is a self-centeredness and a self-concern. What about angry words? You know, wars and fights start because of careless, angry words. Quarrels between people start in the most foolish ways, where both sides of the, are just speaking harshly with, 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 with each other. There needs to be a gentleness that comes into how we speak, and I want to encourage you, again, Proverbs seventeen fourteen. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. That's what it says. It's like you release water, and once water is released, you can't stop it. So just quit before you start. What about despairing words? What about unbelieving words? What about fearful words? Think of Numbers 14. The people are complaining and murmuring against Moses because he's led them out of Egypt. He's actually taken them out of slavery and they start complaining, oh, give us the leeks and the cucumbers and garlic that we had in Egypt. What about excessive talking? Talking too much. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Someone who restrains their words and chooses their words carefully is being wise. Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. But he who opens his lips wide comes to ruin. Guys, we don't want to come to ruin, do we? None of us. Me, I, I don't want to come to ruin. What about when our words are complaining? Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned the story of... Um, them coming out of Egypt. But you know, often complaining robs us of our inheritance. 
God has a destiny for you. He has, there is a place of milk and honey for you. All those images. But sometimes our complaining robs us of what God has for us. What about slander and bitter words? You know, even Jesus' disciples got resentful. Remember the story of um, Lazarus when Je- Jesus didn't come in time to heal Lazarus? What did they say? They say, if you'd been here in time, he wouldn't have died. They were, they were resentful. <laughs> they were angry. Jesus, what's your problem? Why did you take so long? And yet they didn't know that Jesus had something far greater for them in store when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I've chatted a little bit about slander. You know, it was forbidden under the Mosaic law. And Proverbs 10.18 and Proverbs 11.9 say this, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, his neighbor but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. And unfortunately, I think all of us can testify to times in our lives when we've been the victim of slander and just how unpleasant, ugly, and demonic it is. It makes your life miserable when you've been slandered. And so there are many other things I could talk about, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. And because there is some good news... And uh, I'd like to just spend the last five minutes talking about that. I mean, we can all make mistakes in our judgment because of cultural differences. Sometimes people use flattery to try and bring dissension, bring division amongst friends. There's boasting, there's twisting facts, there's sharing confidence with others when we shouldn't. What about sharing an offense with someone before obeying what Matthew 18, 15 says? If you've got a grievance against someone, go and speak to them. If it doesn't resolve, take another one. If that doesn't resolve, take two or three. If that doesn't resolve, it, bring it before the whole church. That's what Matthew eighteen fifteen says we should do. So what is the good news? <laughs> well, I'm convinced James is actually being incredibly positive. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that James wants us to learn to encourage people. That our tongues actually have vast potential for good. That Jesus certainly has forgiven us fully. Absolutely. I want to encourage you that what you and I need to learn to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is to help people to feel forgiven. There's a big difference. You can, someone can be forgiven, some friend in your life can have offended you and they can be forgiven under the blood of the cross, but you can, and I can, not help them feel forgiven. How do you do that? Well, you just withhold your affection from them. You just let them know that you're still displeased with them. So they might have been forgiven by Christ, but you just let them know that you are not happy with them. And so they don't feel forgiven. I'm convinced God wants us to be people that help each other to live free and feel forgiven by each other. Personal testimony. A number of years ago, many years ago now, I had a very close friendship with this guy, and um, we had shared lots of our university life together, and it was a very a good friendship in my life. And um, he was part of, of the church that I was part of. And he left. And um, I wasn't quite certain what had happened or why, but a couple of years ago, I decided to write a letter to this man. And I wrote this letter. I felt God, I woke up again at night. I felt God just say, you need to write a letter. So I wrote a letter to this guy, a long letter, where I just laid bare my own heart. I apologized for everything I could think 
I'd ever done to offend this man. And I felt a sense of relief. I felt like I'd done all that I, I could. Uh, I, said, I pleaded, I went before God and I said, Lord, forgive me if there's anything I've done. Please forgive me. And I, there was a sense of freedom that came as I wrote this letter. Anyway, I gave it, posted it off. And I never, ever got a reply. Not even an acknowledgement of the letter. Not even saying, well, thank you for writing or, um, or I agree with you, you did these things. Just nothing. Absolute silence. Do you think that helped me to feel forgiven? <laughs> Although I knew absolutely that Christ had forgiven me for anything that I might have done. I want to say to you, we have to be those that help people to feel forgiven by how we speak. To help them feel that they have a future. To help them feel optimistic. To help them feel secure. To feel loved. To feel fearless when they are in our presence because they know that we are not holding anything against them by what we say. So can I come back as I conclude to what I've already said? There must be a growing sense in a church community of deep affection, friendliness. Ultimately, James wants our tongues to be used as an instrument for blessing. To use the animal comparisons. He doesn't want our tongue to be a wild horse. He wants our tongue to be a domestic horse. He doesn't want our tongues to take us off in this direction when we're actually trying to go in that direction. He doesn't want our tongue to be a burning wildfire that's completely out of control. He wants our tongue to be a warm fire that, that brings joy and brings love and brings affirmation and affection, not, a, not something that consumes everything that's in front of us. Ultimately, James wants our tongue to become good medicine in each other's lives, not poison. So how is that possible? Because in verse 7, James says, no human being can tame the tongue. And by that he's meaning that there's no human power in our nature or anything that we possess within ourselves that can control our tongue. So how on earth is it possible? Well, the good news, my friends, is Acts chapter 2, verse 2, which simply says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided. Tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? The first thing, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. On the day of Pentecost, which we've just celebrated, there was a different fire that fell from heaven. It was not the fire of hell that ascended from hell. It was the fire that fell down from heaven. And it came to rest upon them as tongues of fire. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he pours himself out in Pentecost, the first thing he does is he touches their mouths. And they start to speak differently. They sing the praises of God. They start to speak in different tongues. And there's a different atmosphere in the community when the Holy Spirit comes down in power. That is the good news. We cannot do it with our own control. It's impossible. We need the Holy Spirit to come and empower us, to change the way we speak. You know, Genesis 3.12, Adam says this, The woman you gave me, 
She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. <laughs> the first, 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 first demonstration of sin in the Bible is a man abusing speech and blaming someone else. Gentlemen, men since the Garden of Eden have done nothing and they've blamed someone else. It's what men do all the time. They are sinful, they refuse to accept responsibility for their own sin, and they blame other people. It wasn't me, it was my wife. It wasn't me, it was my children. It wasn't me, it was the devil. No, it was you. Take responsibility for your sin. Don't blame your wife. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does, he renews the power of speech. And in verse 11 of Acts chapter 2, it says this, Jews, proselytes, Christians, Arabians, we hear them telling of God in their own tongue the mighty works of God. My friends, that is what James is trying to say to us. That's what he wants us to learn. The display of God's glory in your life, the display of God's glory in my life, is that our tongues are His. Not the devil's. Our tongues are His. They speak of His glory. They worship Him with great abandon. They encourage people. They're building people up. It's lifting people up. It's encouraging. They're helping them to feel set free. Not doing the devil's work, which is to discourage, bring down, unforgiveness, bitterness, slander. What side do you want to be on? God's side or the devil's? I'm convinced that God wants to do an amazing thing in this church. An amazing thing that this community becomes known as a worshiping, God-fearing, love-speaking community that it's continuously being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that our words are always positive, full of faith, always affirming each other, that the world and the devil does enough to tell you that you're rubbish. Yes? (laughs) We need God, the Holy Spirit in us, so that we can encourage each other, demonstrate that, love each other, affirm each other, speak positively. I want to challenge you as as we finish and... um, We're going to have a time of worship. And I really trust this morning that this place, the roof will lift off as we sing with our tongues the praises of God and His glory. All right? And then I want to encourage you as you leave this morning, and I don't know what's going to happen in the time of worship. We'll just see. But when you go out of this place this week, that your tongue is an instrument for God's glory this week, that you affirm your wife, husbands. Wives, you affirm your husband. That you love on your church, that you love on your children, that you love on your friends, that in your business, wherever you are, you make a difference in the office, that you are speaking life to people, you're speaking with faith, you're speaking with conviction, you're speaking with joy. Yes? And if you feel right now, even though I'm saying that you feel weak, you're saying, Oh God, I can't do that. I want to just say, I agree with you. You can't do that. I can't do that. But the Holy Spirit in me, can do that. 
And that's why we're going to just cry out to God. Now we're going to worship Him. We're going to ask Him to come. We're going to ask Him to come in power. Whatever He wants to do, we're going to ask Him to encourage us. So we leave energized, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, determined that we're going to live our lives as He wants us to live. Amen? God bless you.